Okay, missing blanks, Lee. You think you got them all? All right. You're doing better. I'm doing better. There you go. There you go. Well, did you notice that A goes one, two, then B goes three, four? I did. You better bet Daniel did. You better bet Dave Lample did. Um, it's because I made B a point later, and so it's just yeah, yeah, it's kind of yeah. That's right. That's right. Any missing blanks from anybody? Three A face to face. Face to face. Okay. And oh yes. A two. For Jesus can sustain and give help. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Questions. Questions. Yes. Oh microphone. Who's gonna do microphone? Here we go. My mic's on. Yes, it is. All right. Okay. Okay. Um, you made a good point that I never thought about before, that before Jesus became flesh, he was, that was not the appropriate title. What was, because they knew there was a Messiah to come, how did they refer to him? What the was Messiah, David's son. Okay. The, the key point being the angel says he will be called. Jesus. His name yes. will be Jesus. So technically, it's not accurate to speak of pre-incarnate Christ as Jesus. Right, right. I said that in front because I'm sure I'm going to mess it up, and so I want to make that point clear, and then fair enough. Um, he's the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, I would, I would argue extensively. Um, he is uh, referred to as the Son and the Word. Th- those would be terms um, of, of his designation. But Jesus specifically is it when the son takes on flesh he is named jesus and and names biblically designate a change in condition so that after the resurrection god has the father has given him a new name above all names right because his 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 glory and his position is 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 now exalted even above what it was before so so that's the idea, but don't mess. You're not, you're not messing up if you call pre-incarnate Christ Jesus. It's just technically Jesus is the name the Son of God takes upon Himself at the incarnation. Right. Well, it's, you might. You, yes. Yes. I'm referring to, to to Revelation. He has a name which no one knows but Himself. That's one of the... Desi- you can have multiple names. Yes. It's not like we're going to stop calling him Jesus. And in fact, your point about, um, your point about Philippians 2, that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. I never forget McDougal on this. Paul doesn't like calling Jesus simply Jesus. He really doesn't. It's Lord Jesus, Christ Jesus. He, he, I remember we had a professor. He just doesn't. Do a study in Paul. Paul does not like Jesus without a title affixed. Um, I remember McDougal. He was this weird, he had like a Scottish-Canadian accent, if that makes any sense. And he was a Scot who grew up in Canada. And he j- talked about how, and he didn't want to bind other people's consciences. So he was always saying, this is for, you can do it, but I can't. This is for me. He's like, he's like, the Apostle Paul would not sing my Jesus, I love you. 
You wouldn't do it. And you can, you can, but they, it, Lord Jesus, I love you. Because he's just like, there's no way Paul would ever do that. Sure. No, no, sure. But the point in the, the point in the point in uh, I, I'm never going to object to someone saying I want to give Jesus more honor. And he was being very clear not to say other people shouldn't. Yes, I agree with him. If you study Paul, it does not appear Paul likes saying Jesus without affixing some title to it. But so the one place he does, there's only one time in Philippians where Jesus shows up. The term is anarthrus or non titular. And it's there, and it's to make the emphatic point. How great is his name? It is so great that Jesus, sans any other title, causes every knee in heaven, earth, and hell to bow. That's how high. That, that's a, a great name. Serena wants to weigh in. We're getting to you, Dawn, eventually, but we're letting the ladies go first. Serena is weighing in here. Oh, I just wanted to point out is that we're not used to hearing Jesus as a name, but it's isn't it like Joshua? Yeah, wouldn't, it's just Yeshua. So it's kind of a big deal that even more so in Philippians right. 2 than we would think right. of it as because we don't name our kids Jesus. Yeah, Greek would be Iesus. So when I was growing up singing in the Catholic Church Latin, it's Iesus. I mean, so Jesus was not the vocalizations that anyone would have been saying. It would have been Joshua or Yeshua or Iesus. What? They didn't have a J. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So... And so when you think about that sense, Joshua's a pretty common Jewish name. Um, so, so, yeah, it's Jesus. How we, we ended up with Jesus because all the Ys become Js for some reason. Uh, I, when I, my Greek professor once explained it to me. It was basically coming through Latin, through the Germanic languages. But that's like how you end up with Jehovah Witnesses. Well, the Y from Yahweh becomes a J. So all the Jewish names, you know, in the Old Testament that have J's in them are almost certainly Y's. So it would be Jeremiah, right? Um, it would not be Jeremiah. There is no J. Yosef. Yehob, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So all those J's are Y's. So, and I think it's fine to call him Jesus because, again, from last week, because they translate the Bible, it's not, I mean, because I've talked to some people who get sort of caught up in this Jewish roots things, and they get really caught up in whether you're pronouncing Jesus' name correctly or not. I mean, they get really caught up. And then they come up with some really interesting pronunciations. I heard someone try to tell me it was, do you remember? Yahushua. And they thought that was a really big deal that we were saying it wrong. And it's like, actually, because the New Testament's willing to take God's holy covenant name of Yahweh and simply call it Kurios Lord. So when Jesus and Paul quote the Septuagints, that's what they do. Clearly, this isn't a magic word that we need. I mean, on the one hand, ought we to deal with it as respectfully, seriously? Of course. This isn't magic. Spells, folks. Right, right. So it's, it's not a matter of like, you didn't say it exactly properly. That's more like magic. Right. Um, it's, it's, anyway, yeah. Okay, now Don, microphone to Don. On that same basis, then, would not Christ also, he wasn't the Messiah. Christ, as I understand, is, is the Greek yeah. for Messiah. Hebrew, English anointed. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. yeah. Messiah, Christ, and anointed are Hebrew, Greek, and English for the same thing. 
All I've said is the same thing in three different languages. So until he was incarnated, he wasn't Christ either. Yes. Yes. Really until the baptism. He gets anointed at the baptism. But it is a sense. But there's a sense. Sorry, there's a trip to Kentucky where we were listening to Carson going, there's a sense. In one sense, Jesus is born king of the Jews, right? He doesn't technically enter into his kingship until the ascension after the resurrection. So he's born the Messiah, and he actually gets anointed at his baptism. Um, that's when the Holy Spirit comes upon him like a dove. So I, that's why I don't want to be too tricky, to, even about calling him Jesus prior incarnation. I'm just saying technically, Jesus is what he's called at his birth. You and I are going to mess up and it's fine. But understand, technically, Jesus is the name he takes upon himself or he's given him at his birth. So you want more? What, Go. Wanna, uh, uh, mm-hmm. uh, changing horses here. Oh, changing horses. <laughs> Uh, you, you talked about uh, God, Christ being uh, the Word, being God's self-expression, and that was one of the reasons for the uh, uh, prohibition against idols. Yeah. Uh, another reason is because they, because an idol can't speak, right. they can't reflect, they can't right. accurately reflect God. Right. Well, that's 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 the common mockery of the pagan idols. Well, they teach. They have they have eyes but don't see. They have ears but don't hear. They have mouths but don't speak. They're dumb idols. Dumb meaning mute, right? Absolutely. Um, okay. Did you have a question, Scott? Wait, microphone's coming. No, no, no. Microphone is coming. Our five faithful listeners care. It was just on names. Uh, I oh. was confused as far as Messiah, Messiah. Christos and then Savior. So Messiah is simply taking Messiah and adding a guttural. Okay. It's, it's just a more authentic or so then Moshiah. So the Hebrew would just be if I was be like Messiah, and then to not sound obnoxious, you'd say Messiah. You know, I mean, unless you actually speak Hebrew. My wife's forbidding me. It's like our daughter Hadassah. It's re- we all know it's Hadassah, right? Okay, um, but she's forbidden me from doing that again. Um, well, just like Zadok would be like Zadach. Just as this has come up, that yeah, yeah. Um, the argument that there has been lots of messiahs, or there, there have been lots of saviors sure. in sure. Jewish history. Absolutely. Yeah. No, there, no, there have right. So the first anointed's Levi, not Le- not Levi, Aaron. Aaron's first anointed, and then Saul's an anointed one. No, no, no. So th- there have been many people with this title. So th- just like there's been many sons of David, um, it's not Messiah is not a magic term either. The word Messiah has been applied to numerous people in the Old Testament, as has um, even Son of God. So in, in the in the Davidic covenant, God says clearly. Of Solomon, he will be a son to me, and I will be to him a father. Then I get cited in Psalm 2, I will tell of the decree of the Lord. The Lord said to me, today I have begotten you, you are my son. And this citing the, the Davidic covenant. So in a very real sense, the Davidic king is the son of God. No question. In another sense, right, the Beatitudes, blessed are the merciful, for they shall be called sons of God. The peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. What we start to realize with sort of a biblical theology is... As these titles move along, we're going somewhere special. So, so uh, even in Psalm 2, you go read Psalm 2, 
unless you got two options to Psalm 2. Either it's hyperbolic, over-the-top language about Solomon or some future Davidite's kingdom, because it's, it's, it's like sea to sea, all the rulers of the world, you better cower, you better bend the knee, you better kiss the sun, or he'll smash you in two like a potter's vessel with his rod of iron. And as great as Solomon was, he didn't have a worldwide kingdom. Or there's a data, greater Davidite coming of whom this psalm is talking. And so as you keep reading, as the New Test, and as the Old Testament keeps adding information, and then like Psalm 110, so Psalm 2 makes it clear there's a Messiah who's also going to be a Davidite. Because you've got these threads coming of, of, of anointed, right? So there's an anointed one. People are anointed. But then Psalm 2 combines sonship, anointed, and kingship. That's it. Sonship, kingship, and anointed. Psalm 110 adds priesthood, to this Davidite. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand and I'll make your enemies a footstool. Um, and so as it starts going, we're getting towards something more beefed up. So it's, it's more than being caught up in the term, well, this person's called Messiah, so Jesus isn't... Cl-. By the time Jesus shows up, these terms are pointing towards someone very particular, even as, yes, there are antecedent usages that are less exalted. So I'd want to show... If, if, someone, if someone were coming and saying, look, Jesus is the Christ, so are eight other people in the Old Testament, I'd say, fair enough. Can I show you that by the time Jesus gets here, we should be expecting someone very special, a very particular and exalted Christ um, who will hold his priesthood forever, according to Melchizedek, and other things. But you'd have to show that through doing a biblical theology, which would take you know half an hour or so um, to sort of work through. No, it's a, it's a fair—again, these aren't magic titles— you know, so it's not like he's Christ. Saul is the Lord's. Why won't David touch Saul? He's the Lord's Christ. He's the Lord's anointed. Probably in hell. The Lord's, one of the Lord's anointed is probably in hell. I doubt we're going to see Saul in glory. It's possible, but I doubt it. Um, the, the killing, the slaughtering of the priests at Nob is probably the single greatest high-handed sin in the Old Testament, in my view. He just wipes out most of the priests. The entire priesthood just because they helped David and gave him some bread. So um, maybe, maybe, but I doubt it. But anyway, further questions on any of this or other questions? Don loops again. You getting your steps in? I uh, don't know Hebrew, but from what I have heard or read, um, in uh, Deuteronomy 6, the word, that word one translated in English is a plural form. I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to try to go through there. It's, it's not that it's plural. It could represent plurality. So it's, it's, it's one of the, dude, I have like 12 Hebrew words I know. Um, this is one of them. And I'll throw the guttural in. It's echad. Just because Michael Card sings it in, in Hebrew. Israel, um, anyway. Um, Shema, Shema, Israel. Adonai Elohenu Achad. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Adonai Elohenu, Adonai Achad. Yeah, anyway, sorry. You can check it out. Michael Card does it way better than I just did. And um, it's the same word used, the two shall become one in marriage. So it's not, I think, I don't think it's that the word is plural. I could look it up in a second, pull up my Hebrew Bible. But um, I think it's more that there's at least one or two places where one can be used in plurality. And, and it's interesting, again, 
that the God who is three and yet one, when he makes man in his image, makes a married couple who then are said the two become one. So in the definition of this marriage couple, there's a plurality and a oneness and a plurality. Um, so that was my understanding, that Genesis 2 proves that Echad 1 can have notions of plurality tied up in it. So um, it's, I, I'll check and see if it actually is plural. That's what I'd heard before. Oh, I'll, I'll pull it up. I'll check. I just can't talk and do the same thing at once. So, um, any any other questions, thoughts on any of this? Okay, then I'm going to talk about Western philosophy for a second. Um, no, I'm, I'm prepping a class for the homeschoolers on, on a survey of Western philosophy. And one of the things that's really interesting, John, if you want a good book on this, you want a good audible credit, John Frame has a book. The narrator's excellent. Um, it's History of Western Philosophy. It's a gold medal winner of Christian Award. It's excellent. And it's a nice survey through Western philosophy. And he, he does a nice job of critiquing it all from a Christian perspective. So he's like, okay, here's what Plato, here's what Aristotle thought. And then he always comes in with his, his critique. And one of the things that's interesting is from the very beginning, as people consider fundamental questions, is trying to account for oneness and plurality in the world. And so in a lot of the Greek philosophers, they generally veer towards one or the other. Um, On the one hand, I mean, even our word Adam comes from a Greek philosopher who keeps trying to, what's everything ultimately made out of? And the, the thought being, as long as you can separate it into two or more things, we haven't gotten to the bottom. We haven't got to the one thing. Kind of hoping eventually that the world's like Lego bricks, that eventually you get to a unifying thing. Because there's a oneness, a sameness. But there's also change. And so some of the Greek philosophers would press that there's oneness so much so that change was an illusion. Change was not real because everything's water. Or everything's fire. No, no, some guy's trying to get down to everything. Well, because everything can basically burn, right? Um, or everything can be liquefied if you get it hot enough. So they're trying to figure out what of the elements is prime. And yet they're also trying to account for change. And what's interesting is the, 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 the Trinity, God making the universe in a way that reflects his glory, accounts for oneness, the oneness, and the many. The one and the many is sort of his framing. And so another interesting thing uh, that Trinity does is give a basis for both the changelessness, and yet by nature there being a relationship, there is activity. I mean, again, if you're thinking of God and eternity past in non-Trinitarian categories, it's hard to think of him much as being a person even, as opposed to an algorithm or something. But Jesus is talking about, and there's a couple verses in the Bible that get us behind the curtain. First Peter 1 talks about a promise that was made before time began. Paul is an apost- uh, Peter is an apostle in the hopes of eternal life, which God who cannot lie promised before the ages began. Now we're looking at some member of the Trinity, probably the Son, promising to redeem these people to the Father. But you've, you've got activity, right, which is hard to view um, with a Muslim or a Jewish, an Orthodox Jewish construction of God. So I, I think that's all fascinating. Zeb, microphone for Zeb. You, you already kind of mentioned it, but the, specifically the, um, the aspect of God's love um, is basically not... It, it, in the Islamic world, it's basically unheard of like the idea that god that love could be an as like an intrinsic aspect or an intrinsic um 
part of God's character is just, yeah. it's impossible because it, if God is eternal and everything other than God is not eternal, yeah. then prior to his creation, God was not loving because right. there was nothing for God to love. It becomes at best a contingent attribute. Exactly. When there are people for Allah to love, then he's loving. It's not part of his timeless, eternal nature. It's only something he does when creation shows up. Yeah, exactly. Which, which again, is fascinating to me. So when, getting back to the, the intra-Trinitarian relationship, when God shows up in Genesis 1 and speaks, he's not doing anything fundamentally new. When God shows up in Genesis 1 and relates and, and talks and communicates with Adam and Eve, he's not doing something fundamentally new. There's been communication in the Godhead for all of eternity. He's acting according to his nature. It's, it's, it's amazing um, that what we see going on at the creation, I mean, this is Piper, this, creation is the glory of God gone public. You know, it's, it's the overflow of his glory and their joy um, in, in their fellowship that wants to create a further audience and participants in that joy and in that glory that is the creation. Um, yeah. So yeah, even even viewing God as a person with a personality, in a sense, is is more difficult in the mono the strict monotheistic religions because, again, in the scope of eternity, man, the creation and our time is that. Unitarian. Unit, yeah, the, in the Unitarian view. Thank you. It's really hard to even see God terribly personal because persons relate to persons, you know. Unless he's just sort of sitting by himself thinking his thoughts. But what we see is actually communication between three people um, in, in the Trinity. Um, in fact, I want to read for you. I'd recommend for you, look up the Nicene Creed. The early church spent a lot of time arguing, trying to be precise over uh, the Trinitarian formula. And it's not scripture, but it's pretty good. And I think it's worth reading in 325 AD. And what they're trying to, what they're trying to do is there's, there's errors that cropped up. Um, there's Arianism, that the son became God, little g. There's uh, Nestorianism, that the son appeared to be God. There's, no, that's Docetism, sorry. Docetism is the denial of the humanity. That's because the, so Plato Plato thinks matter's bad. And, you know, and, and Plato's no dummy. Plato will say things like, has anyone here ever seen a perfect triangle? The answer is no. But yet we all have an idea of triangleness. And we all recognize that the triangles you've seen drawn approach that. But his whole point is there, there's this world of thought and forms which we have access to. You've never seen a perfect circle or a perfect triangle, and yet you n recognize when we see it, but all the earthly triangles you've seen are imperfect and only approach that. And you recognize a chair when you see it, but there's all sorts of different ways chairs can exist. So how do you, there's this fundamental form of chairness that exists in the noumenal thought world. And so the noumenal thought world is the perfect world where logic and reason and these forms are, and then this created world is really just like shadows on the wall in regards to detail and clarity. And so the, 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 the Christians who were taught this, the, the first heresy coming into Christianity is Platonic. You see evidence of it in First John, where John is, no, we saw him, we touched him. He didn't appear 
to be human. He was human. If, this is why in 1 John chapter 2, by this the spirit of the Antichrist is known. Whoever denies the Son has come in sarks, in the flesh. Um, because you have people saying, well, sure, he appeared human. He looked human. But the concept was, to, to a Platonist, God would stop being God. God would become corrupted if he took on flesh. Because intrinsic to matter is corruption. Because sure, things decay and things die and things break. So God couldn't become flesh. He could appear flesh. And so that's, that's from 1 John chapter 1 where he's hammering. We've seen him. We touched him. We heard him. It's evidence of platonic thinking creeping in to the church and getting pushed out. So it was actually the denial of the humanity of Christ that comes before the denial of the deity of Christ. But all that to say, because of these various errors, there's another one, modalism. You ever heard of modalism? This, this, is, uh, this is some, some not all, but some uh, fringe Pentecostal oneness. They're caught up in this. And modalism denies the Trinity. It's the thought that the Father is, when God acts one way, He's like the father. And when God acts another way, like, like I am someone, I'm my mother's son, I'm my wife's husband, and I'm my children's father. And sometimes I function in those different capacities. When I'm talking to my kids, I'm a father. When I'm talking to my wife, I'm a husband. When I talk to my mother, I'm a son. And they try to explain the Trinity that way. And what you lose is fellowship. You, what you lose is the rea- well, what you lose is truth. But practically, again, we're back to how is love a fundamental reality? So, so modalism where God puts on different hats. So you've got to actually say God is three simultaneous people if you really want to press the point. So anyway, here's the Nicene Creed. I'll read slowly for you. But they've all these different errors creeping in that they're trying to hammer out and press back against. So this was, every word in this is intentional. And it's well worth your time to read just to understand what the church has worked through. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten not made. Which is their way of saying the Bible says he's begotten, but you must not confuse him with a creature who came into being and was made. It's not trying to explain that. I'm not sure I could explain to you how someone is begotten but not made, but they're insisting he's begotten, not made. Um, of the same essence as the Father, which is a philosophical category, whatever God consists of, whatever his being is made of, and it's not matter, Jesus is fully God. It's the same essence. That's a philosophical category they're insisting upon. Um, it's the same essence as the Father. Through him, all things were made. That's the very next verse we're getting to next week. For us and for our salvation... He came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made human. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again according to the scriptures. That's just paraphrasing 1 Corinthians 15. He ascended into heaven, is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will never end. And then the Holy Spirit, which... I was asked before this, will we get to the deity of the Holy Spirit? In John 14, we will. and 13, we will. So, two years or so. Um, but, the Nicene Creed, we believe in the Holy Spirit, 
the Lord, the giver of life. He proceeds from the Father and the Son, and with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified. He spoke through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic, lowercase c, apostolic church. Catholic just means what? Anybody? Universal. Universal. Yes. Um, this, they're writing this before Catholic capital C's took on the emphasis it has. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We affirm one baptism for the baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look forward to the resurrection of the dead and to life in the world to come. Amen. That's the Nicene Creed. Look it up. Read an article on its history. But th- these are truths the early church was really trying to frame. This is the first sort of Trinitarian formula that seemed to guard against all the errors. In fact, that word same substance as opposed to similar substance, massive debate. Greek, two Greek words, homoousius and homoousius. What are you, Zeb's checking, fact checking me on something here. No, I was, I was just going to bring up the Athanasian Creed, um, which okay. I think does. Is even better? Oh, I. Yeah. It does. It's, it's got a slightly different focus. The Athanasian Creed is, has a greater degree of specificity um, in regards to the son's relationship to the father. Read it. Um, Read it. Okay. I will. So, okay. what year is the Athanasian? Is that, is that, that, was, that was one of the things I was trying to. Is that 385? Uh, I think it was. I. I'm looking it up just a second here. Because this is 325. Athanasian but no, the Athanasian Creed, I believe, I want to say 385. Tell me if... Yeah, I think it was after. I'm looking it up quick here. Athanasius. Um, yeah, I'm trying to find it. For whatever reason, I pulled it up on Wikipedia and it's not telling me when it's actually when it was actually formulated. But the, um, the translation of it... Um, <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, it says, whoever will be saved before all things, it is necessary that he hold to the Catholic faith. Again, universal, small c Catholic. Um, which faith, unless everyone do keep whole and undefiled, without doubt he shall perish everlastingly. And the, the Catholic faith is this, that we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, neither confounding the persons nor dividing the essence. For there is one person of the Father, another of the Son, and another of the Holy Ghost. But the Godhead of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost is all one, the glory equal, the majesty co-eternal. Such is the... <clears throat> Excuse me. Such as the Father is, such is the Son, and such is the Holy Ghost. The Father uncreated, the Son uncreated, and the Holy Ghost uncreated. The Father unlimited, the Son unlimited, and the Holy Ghost unlimited. The Father eternal, the Son eternal, and the Holy Ghost eternal. And yet they are not three eternals, but one eternal. As also there are not three uncreated, nor three infinities, but one uncreated and one infinite. So likewise, the Father is almighty, the Son almighty, and the Holy Ghost almighty. And yet there are not three almighties, but one almighty. So the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Ghost is God. And yet there are not three gods, but one God. So likewise, the Father is Lord, the Son Lord, and the Holy Ghost Lord. And yet there are not three lords, but one Lord. For like as we are compelled um, by the Christian verity uh, to acknowledge every person by himself to be God and Lord... So are we forbidden by the Catholic religion to say there are three gods or three lords. The Father is made of none, neither created nor begotten. The Son is of the Father alone, not made nor created, but begotten. The Holy Ghost is of the Father and of the Son, neither made nor created nor begotten, but proceeding. So there is one Father, not three fathers, one Son, not three sons, one Holy Ghost, not three Holy Ghosts. 
and in this trinity none is before or none or after another none is greater or less than another but the whole uh three persons are co-eternal and co-equal so that in all things as aforesaid the unity in trinity and the trinity in unity is to be worshiped he therefore will be saved let him thus think of the trinity and it it goes on from there yeah. also into the incarnation the incarnational aspects yeah. but in regards to the the relationship between the three yeah. uh the athanasian creed is amazing yeah. well no because there's there's questions you got to think through even just the what, where, where do they do with the where do they do with the hypostatic union? What council is that? Is that Chalcedon? So no, because these are questions that because again people come in and they uh, they they add weird doctrine. So usually, here's it's usually error that forces the church to focus and come up with clarity. We didn't come up with a statement on marriage until there's some confusion and error on that. And so as people are teaching things and be like, oh, that doesn't sound right. Then they got to get the church together to figure out what they think. But take something, I was about to say, take something as simple as the incarnation. Good grief. Sorry. <laughs> take the incarnation. Take the incarnation. Okay. So is Jesus fully man? Is Jesus fully God? Okay. So, he's got, so they talk about having a human nature and a divine nature. And yet there's two errors you can make from this. On one hand, if the human nature and the divine nature mingled, it's hard to escape the conclusion Jesus is now a new third thing. If you take red and blue and mix them together, you get purple, right? So, so um, if you take God and man and mix them together, you end up with a third thing. Well, that's error. So, no, where's one that's like indistinct, unresolvable? There's like 18 adjectives describing Jesus' incarnation. And then, yet, on the other hand, if you have Jesus' human nature and divine nature so distinct, you end up with, like, Jesus operating like he's bipolar. And you got people going through the Gospels. Here's where Jesus is acting in his human nature. Here's where he's acting in his divine nature. As if something like he's switching back and forth. He's really two people in one, coexisting. And so they, they, they take great clarity to say, um, I want to find it. I should have had it up here but I'll get it in a second. But they're undiluted. Un- Can you look that one up, Zeb? It's, you know the one I'm talking about, right? It's the natures of Christ, the early church statements on the nature of Christ. Undiluted. Well, the, point, the best analogy I've heard would be like if you took red and blue sand and mixed it up, gallons of it together, you don't have any third thing. You still have what you started with, red and blue sand. And yet there's no way of, I mean, in theory, we could conceive of a way of separating them, but for all practical purposes, inseparable. So you have full divinity, full humanity, no collusion and melding into a third thing, and yet no undoing it. That's what they're trying to get at saying, because those are some of the earliest heresies about Jesus, where um, it's a human body, but no human soul. It's like Jesus is the soul matched with the body, and there's no human, they deny the human spirit. In other places, yeah, it gets weird. Yes. Okay, I'm I'm a simple brain, but didn't God sort of give us an example in H2O? Because for the, for the human mind, He gave us ice, water, and steam. But yet they're all H2O. But they each have individual properties. The the weakness of that analogy is that the Trinity is the weakness of that analogy. You would need to have ice, water, and steam all at the same time. There's an eight, no, 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 simultaneous. 
I'm getting, sorry, I mean, I, mean, I mean simultaneously, at one in the same moment, ice present, water present, steam present. Um, that, no, that analogy is good as far as it goes. What, it, what it's open to, what it's, what it's open to, and where I most commonly hear that, are the oneness Pentecostal, what's called modalism. And so the, 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 uh, it's the same thing if you talk about a shamrock having three petals or um, an egg having the shell and the yolk and the white, which are all helpful in explaining certain aspects. The, the drop, what we want to emphasize is the fellowship, ice relating to steam, relating to water. That, that's, so as long as you recognize that's the weakness of that analogy... It lacks all three interacting so that you can see the interaction of water with ice and ice with steam. That's the piece. So it's, it's fun. Yes, it's a mystery. Yes. The one God, or if you want to put it in one sense, the one God exists as three simultaneous people. That's about as short as I can put it. Um, but... Uh, most most of what you read, if you read books on the Trinity, is what the Trinity is not. <laughs> it's not that we've gotten greater clarity on what it is. There's about three or four positive statements I can make about the Trinity. God is the Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God. God is one, and now I pretty much have to flip almost exclusively to negative statements. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father, and now almost all of my description of the Trinity is going to become negative. Um, Zeb again and Serena. Oh, yeah. Okay. She got it. Renee, hit me. Is Calcedon on? Yes. The definition, yeah. Yeah. Listen to the care. And just as we're talking, because you're tempted to hear this, man. Ah, No, there's a reason. Every one of these words is guarding against a heresy that cropped up. No, no, the, I just want the part about, like, the seven adjectives describing his nature. Undiluted, un... Do you know One and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, to be acknowledged in two natures, inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably, this distinction of the natures being by no means taken away by the union, but rather the property of each nature being preserved and concurring in one person and subsistence. Subsistence, excuse me. Uh, not no, no, parted. Perfect. Every one of those words is closing the door to a very real teaching that the church had to say, no, that ain't right. Like, it, it, they didn't just string that along because they wanted to be, like, you know, eggheads. It's every one of those is, is important. Um, in the back. Oh, no, no. Microphone for Dave. No, no. Dave in the back. Dave in the back, then Zeb. Sorry, sorry, Zeb. Oh, I just want, I just want you to know that I can explain the Trinity. I just don't have the words. Oh. <laughs> Thank you, Dave. Okay, Zeb. So, on the. The, the Trinity is much more, as we described the Trinity, it is much more, here's what it's not. Yeah. Because yeah. What, is the, what is the number one attribute, or what is the most commonly stated attribute of God? Otherness. Holy. Holiness. Yeah, yeah. Holy, holy, holy. Yeah. Means not like anything else. So if you, yeah. can, if you can say, well, God is like X, 
No, he's not. Because right. he's not like anything. He's God. He's holy. He's right. entirely separate. So mm, then you're, then you're kind of like heresy. <laughs> <laughs> Do not sharply rebuke an older woman, but address her as you would a mother. I, it, that's exactly how I was addressing her. I feared. Okay. No. So, no, no. I've, I've seen, like, 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 people, these T-shirt companies that try to make, like, cool hip T-shirts. And, like, Jesus is like Coke. He's the real thing. No, stop it. The whole point of the, uh, to whom will you compare me, says God. To whom will you liken me? Um, no, that point about, that point about the Im- uh, imagery I got from Neil Postman in his book, Amusing Ourselves to Death. But just, just pause and think. What a radical statement you can't image god so then how can i learn about him how can i teach my kids about him you have to use words here is a god who can only be approached through language that that's hugely significant um in regards to the ten commandments what the ten commandments rules out is if i want to teach my neighbor about who god is i got to speak to i I can't draw something and fill in the dots colors and or here's an, here's this image i got no i got i got to communicate with him linguistically here's a god who who will mediate his knowledge through words through language um and not through anything else i mean this is why ultimately why catholicism capital c brought icons and images back because they viewed the people as too ignorant too dumb these poor ignorant people so we got to draw them pictures we got to draw make statues for them we got to you know it, we that was the whole argument was, you know, be nice if they could read, but since they can't, we'll draw them, get them some pictures. You get the sentiment. I'd like, you know, but God has fundamentally said, no, I'm going to reveal myself through life. He could have revealed himself through pictures. He could have sent, like, you know, the, instead of a Bible, he could have waited for Blu-ray technology and sent a Blu-ray. I mean, I don't, I'm not trying to be facetious. There's a certain technology required to have a book, Right. You need to have a written language, not just a spoke, not just a spoken language, but a written language. You got to have the technology to record it. So the Bible presupposes a certain level of technological prowess. So why not wait for the technology of Blu-rays? I'm not being facetious in the slides. He could have. He didn't. He waited for this. Yes, word pictures, not word pictures, not pictures. Yes. Well, and even think about Jesus, right? What, what do we know about his appearance? What color hair did he have? Was he tall, short? He was unassuming. He was unassuming. Right, right. But we don't know. It, we'll get, or someone else, Abraham. What color hair did Abraham have? <laughs> Eventually. Yes, yes. No, but, but what we... What we know about Jesus is no one ever talked like this man. No one ever spoke like this man. That's when they sent people to arrest him. And so um, th- that, that, again, is, is one of the p- dangers. Even if you don't believe, and I don't believe, that the commandment against imaging God is, is enduring for Christians, but even if, you, even if you don't believe that, I know some, there are some, if you think the Ten Commandments are for all time, forever, world without end, amen, then you, you don't think we should draw pictures of Jesus. You don't think... Or of movie, no, no, and that's that's not legalism. That's that's an, a legitimate reading. That certainly that's certainly what those commandments require. The question is, are we under those commandments? So anyone's like, but the kids it doesn't matter. Moses doesn't flex. Um, but 
But even for someone like me who thinks it's okay, I think the emphasis on, on trying to make Jesus, the picture appear attractive, is, is misguided as if I can just make the smile nice enough. If I can just make the look of compassion compassionate enough. It's his words that blew people away. Um, so, so if you're, yeah, um, the, the little Jesus storybook Bible that I have isn't super detailed, and I like that. Like, it's got some sort of like stick figure looking things, like here's where this guy, so you can help the kid formulate some stuff, but it's not trying, it's clear from some of the pictures that they're trying to just, and I get it, it's probably coming from a good heart. I want him to be as, as lovely in this picture as he is to me. The Bible doesn't tell us the first thing about humbled Jesus' appearance. There's, go to Revelation chapter 1. Glorified Jesus is a different matter. Um, he had a beard. Thank you. But, but so, so I'm, not, I'm not trying to dish. If you've got to pick, I'm not trying to slam that. I'm just saying God's chosen to reveal his son and mediate his son to us by words. Um, and he could have sent a picture if he wanted to. Okay, thank you all very much.